When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 13, Lucky Number. We're recording on Friday, August 2nd. I am Rebecca Shinsky, and I'm here with Jeff O'Neill, and we are the editors of BookRiot.com. How are you this morning, Jeff? You know, a busier week in books than you would think for the last week of July. Yeah, a lot. There was a there was a lot of stuff in books and a lot of uh, feelings on the internet this week. You know, I have to admit, when we first started this, I thought maybe some weeks we'd have to like scrape up stuff to talk about. We've got to scrape off stuff to talk about. We do. There's we have too this, much. We have this nice ongoing, uh, huge now Google Doc of things to discuss, and every week we're having to chop something out and stuff that's sort of interesting. Not as interesting as the other things we don't think, but uh, there's a lot going on at all times. Exciting time to be a reader, man. Yeah, it is. I think this is a great time to be a reader. Maybe a scary time to own a bookstore. Yeah, we can get into time. that. That's yeah, to work in publishing, but it's a it's a good time to be a book person. I well, think. Well, because J.K. Rowling's alive, and as long as she's alive and kicking, she just is an interest-producing machine. That's true. And, and speaking of J.K. Rowling, that's right. thank you. Did you see that? You like that? Yeah, you set me up there. We I like that. Follow uh, up. Uh, we got follow up. So she just knows what she's doing, right? I think J.K. Rowling is. She's smart got lady. all of her eggs in the in the proper cartons. Mm-hmm. Chickens in appropriate baskets. Yeah, I don't know what that was that uh, <laughs> metaphor was going for there. I guess where else are you going to put your eggs? But this week, Rowling accepted an apology from the law firm responsible for leaking her identity as Robert Galbraith. Um, and and the, in, in a godfather move, they will make a donate, donation to charity on her behalf. Um, or they'll for give an, the money to her and she will donate it to charity. Right, for an undisclosed large amount. Yeah. Um, so the, the sense here is that it was either this or we're going to court, right? That's mm-hmm. what we think is going on here. Right. Yeah. It was um, one of the members of the law firm that was handling the cuckoo's calling told his wife's best friend mm-hmm. the secret about uh, who Robert Galbraith really was. And the wife's best friend tweeted it to a reporter. Man. There's a, a conversation I wouldn't want to have. Right. Uh, so in addition to doing this, I think you called it an offer you can't refuse yeah. uh, on uh, your critical linking on the site. In addition to uh, getting the law firm to agree to make this donation to charity, J.K. Rowling is also going to donate all of her royalties for the next three years from the sales of the Cuckoo's Calling to the Soldiers Charity, which uh, works to support enlisted and retired soldiers in Great Britain. You know, I missed that. I yeah, that I, bit of the story. Yeah, that's um, a good detail in the in the link that I found here and that we'll put into the show notes. But I think that goes a long way toward uh, showing what Rowling's real motives in doing this pseudonym experiment were. Um, I when, see. You know, yeah. when it first when it first came out, there was a whole lot of like, oh, well, it wasn't selling very well, and so of course they set up this leak to let people know it was really J.K. Rowling, so they could get a boost in sales because, of course, J.K. Rowling what needs more money for her giant swimming pool of money. Uh, 
And this, you know, she's going to give away all of her royalties from it for at least the next three years. So uh, she is certainly putting a public face, at least, on, no, this wasn't about making money. I I didn't want it leaked. That little brown is not giving away their proceeds. I think you're probably right. Um, But that's, you know, I'm not blaming them. I'm just saying that's... That's part of the equation here. But yeah, I think her. Little Brown is like sitting there making Mr. Burns fingers <laughs> in, the, in the corner. Yeah, they, being... they did come out smelling like a rose because, you know, we I don't know that we speculated that maybe they had something to do with it. But we thought about scenarios like who would do this and who had motive to do it. And they certainly did. Right. Because they're going to sure. sell a bunch more copies. But it sounds like this was the real story. It was a loose lip situation um, and that the, the intent doesn't appear to have been to um, out rallying at least in the near term. Who mm-hmm. knows over time if someone would have decided or she would have decided, but this was very much not planned on anyone's part. So um, that's that's a nice, I think that's a bow on that story. Yeah, that's, I that's, think that's that that's is. probably over for It's a for good, happy being. ending for there. I'm, I'll, so. I'll be super interested to see what she does next. I feel like J.K. Rowling is going to keep yep. uh, trying out new things and keep experimenting and um, probably have to write other stuff under other names if she really wants to get a sense of how her writing is received when it doesn't have her name tacked onto it. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe she'll do another you know, pseudonym thing. You know, it's going to be one of those deals like, is Jimmy Hoffa dead? But it's going to be like every debut novel that gets any kind of buzz, could it be? Right. <laughs> could it be? Is that her? I don't know. No, it could be. Um, okay, so we got more follow-up. This is from a story we did several weeks ago mm-hmm. um, for this program Amazon is doing called Kindle World, which basically lets people write fan fiction, authorized fan fiction, um, related to specific intellectual properties that Amazon has signed up. And you could write your fan fiction about whatever property and they would get some of the money and you would get some of the money. And of course, Amazon would get some of the money, (laughs) but a way for fan fiction to be a thing that's Mm -hmm. legit and not um, kind of working on the down low all the time. And this is this is an interesting get. They signed a new property and it's a big property. It is a big one. Are you ready? It's Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut. Is it just Slaughterhouse Five or all of Vonnegut's work? Did you look? Uh, let's see. I did look. Everything that I saw look here. was I about a- Slaughterhouse Five. Um, Cat's Cradle as well. Amazon's Kindle Worlds has secured a license to Kurt Vonnegut works. Oh, like Slaughterhouse like. Five and so, Cat's Cradle. So, so presumably a wider corpus than mm-hmm. just those two. So if you're Ooh, interested, corpus, good word. Jeff. Yeah, no problem. I could say Urv. To, to like that. <laughs> Can you? Yeah. Could you say it? If I say it wrong, it sounds like I'm saying trying to say egg in French. But anyway, <laughs> um, so if you want to go write your Billy Pilgrim, Pilgrim fan fiction and sell it, you can go do that. Yeah, lots of fun speculation on Twitter that the uh, the Vonnegut estate thinks that Billy Pilgrim is going to be you know the highlight of these new stories, but that it per- will perhaps be Kilgore Trout. Yeah. Instead, um, mm. and. Our readers had lots of interesting things to say about this on Twitter yesterday and speculating um, w- potential romances between Billy Pilgrim and Kilgore Trout yeah, and you know, all, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> I think you might you might be uh, right to expect some silliness on Book Riot in the next week yeah, or so about this. I wouldn't this. think that's uh, out of the question. <laughs> I, this is a big name, mm-hmm. uh, especially for literary fiction, sci-fi geeks. Was there a lot of Vonnegut fan fiction needing a home? That's what I'm wondering about. Or is this just a name they could they could get the estate to agree to? I have no 
idea. Yeah. Uh, there seems to be like an interesting level of surprise slash like maybe bordering on outrage that um, that these works that are holy to a lot of readers, right. you know, Kurt, Kurt Vonnegut is beloved um, passionately. And people seem to be not so happy that this could ha- that this is going to happen. Like if there was a lot of fan fiction already, then certainly uh, this is just acknowledging that right. people like to write fan fiction about these characters, that it'll probably be nothing new. But to me, it sort of makes sense given like Vonnegut's reputation and the like sort of the weirdness and forward thinking and experimental um, experimental stuff that he was known for. Like maybe he would have been down with this. It's it's hard to say. I mean, it's certainly possible. I guess when we first were talking about Kindle Worlds, I was more thinking about I thought it was cool, and I was more thinking about, well, let's say, for example, something we talked about last week, the Veronica Mars books. Yeah. Like, with characters and storylines that people were interested in continuing. Not so much these sort of self-contained literary works, which, I, I don't know, I'm not in love with this, I have to say, like, but it's one of those deals, like, if you don't like it, don't read it. <laughs> you know, it's not, <laughs> it's not like they're going to go back and change Slaughterhouse-Five or Cat's Cradle or something else like that. Um, but they got a big, maybe they were looking to make a splash, because you know what? We're talking about it right now. We sure are. Um, and whether or not it sells a bunch of um, Slaughterhouse 6 copies, um, at the very least, people are talking about it. And it gives some big-time literary legitimacy to the idea because this is a big-time literary name, one of right. the titans of 20th yeah. century American if, letters. If you're the guy whose job it is to go from Amazon out to the people who manage the, these writers' estates and get permission for characters, then being able to say, well, we've got Kurt Vonnegut right. um, is a nice thing to have in your back pocket yeah. to help sell that idea. And if you're doing the kind of classic public relations or signing people up to do stuff, like if you wanted to go down the sci-fi route, maybe this is a stepping stone to getting some sci-fi estates. Sure. like a big get would be something like Douglas Adams or right. um, Philip K. Dick or, you know, one of the big, you know, that or Frank Herbert who wrote Dune or something like that. One of those, one of those big fan bases. Mm-hmm. Um, this might be, even just be a, oh God, yeah. Um, <laughs> those guys are never going to do that, but they won't be around forever. Um, so anyway, that's Kurt Vonnegut, you know, dust off your uh, typewriter and get to writing your um, player piano fan fiction. Looks like you can do that. All right, let's do our first sponsor before we get into the, the new news from the week. And this week it's Brilliance Again by Marcus Aiki. It's a thriller set in the alternate present day. So this day, today, but the world today, but kind of just a little to the left. Um, 1% of the population in this little to the left present day are born with a special gift. And these people are called brilliant. So I think kind of like X-Men, I don't think it's like a mutation is just you're sort of born with it. It doesn't have all that genetic stuff. But um, they can do not really shoot, you know, Cyclops stuff of shooting laser out of your eyes, but kind of little abilities like you can sense patterns in the stock market um, or you can turn invisible by going to somewhere where no one is looking and then moving out from there. Um, normal people are afraid as all they, they always are in stories like this. Um, and the special, the, the, the main character here is special agent, Nick Cooper, who himself is a brilliant and he's especially good at hunting terrorists, which you would think is really super useful if you're a federal agent. Super useful. Um, and so he's got a target who is a brilliant and who may or may not have done something really terrible and may or may not do really terrible things in the future. So it's kind of like the speculative fiction that's so popular today with an old-fashioned manhunt sort of mystery or crime thriller. So that's, that's if you're looking for something to read on the beach or to keep you up, 
um, and wondering what's going to happen. This is a pretty cool little idea. And uh, check out Brilliance by Marcus Hakey. Thank you for much, so much for sponsoring the show. Um, and check that out. You can find that, uh, you know, take it on the usual places. You can find Brilliance. Look it up. Google it. Oh, and I should say the title is Brilliance the Noun, not Brilliance pl- Plural. So it's B-R-I-L-L-I-A-N-C-E by Marcus Sakey, S-A-K-E-Y. Thanks so much. Woohoo! All right. All right. So you alluded to a little bit, um, but Obama stuck his head into the middle of this Amazon lion, but that wasn't the first Amazon story. That was not, man. This was, uh, there was so much Amazon stuff on the internet. This This one, first one wasn't Amazon's fault, apparently. Right. So uh, on Saturday, this past Saturday, the news came out that Amazon was facing competition from Overstock.com in selling books. And Overstock was running a promotion where it promised to sell its books for 10% lower in price than Amazon was. Uh, So Amazon lowered its prices to compete with this Overstock deal. Uh, and the, the lowering of those prices to compete with Overstock resulted in record low prices on like Amazon.com. Super cheap, like super low, primarily on like blockbuster bestseller yeah. type titles. Um, so what was really notable about the story was that Amazon's prices were lower than ever, um, and that they were doing it to compete with Overstock, which like who thinks of going to Overstock.com <sighs> to buy their books? Not, not before this week, I tell you that. Um, an interesting thing here is that I did a little digging and I talked to a friend who works for Amazon and, uh, that friend confirmed that Amazon actually competes with overstock on book prices all the time. Oh, really? Yeah. But it's never been a deal before in the news because this was the first time that overstock made any overt, uh, pushes towards, we are going to go lower than Amazon. And we're going to talk about the fact that we're going lower than Amazon. And now we're going to try to draw people away from Amazon. So it resulted in this really newsworthy dropping of prices on Amazon. Wow. That's, that's really interesting. I'm not surprised. And, uh, I said on Twitter, like when it happened, I kind of sussed out that it might just have been a PR move from Overstock. Um, It's part of an ongoing war with them. Like, Mm -hmm. let's let's remind people that we exist, if they even knew we existed at all, as a place you could go find cheap hardcovers. Because that's what this is. This is new release hardcovers. These are being slashed by like 65% off the cover price. Right. And, you know, it's one of those things you throw a rock at the big boy and the big boy turns around. um, Everyone's Mm -hmm. looking at you guys. Sure. And um, earlier this week, Laura Hazard-Owen, who writes for... um, paid content and the site called Giga OM did a story where she looked at this and the best that she could tell um, Overstock's actual sales in at least on their top 100 book list didn't really reflect that this promotion had been successful. But it, mm-hmm. a look at Amazon's uh, top selling books in that time period reflected that uh, Amazon customers are That's benefiting from this. Um, so, yeah, I think you're right that it was probably a, a PR attention getting move on Overstock's part. You don't really come out swinging talking about how you're going to undercut Amazon unless you're looking for attention. Right. Um, I mean, Overstock well, has no to know. there's no money to be made there. Yeah, and Overstock has Amazon, to know, yeah. like, they're not they're not going to get a significant chunk of Amazon's business. You but know, if it works out right, you got a couple of sucker podcasters talking about your site and how you can right. buy books there all of a sudden, <laughs> right? Right. And if you're listening and you already knew that you could buy books at Overstock.com or if you really have bought books at Overstock.com, mm. we would like to know that. We would like to know that. Uh, podcast at bookriot.com. Yeah. 
So that happened on Saturday. And, you know, there was a little blowback, like, because the first wave of reaction was like, Amazon is just doing its Amazon thing even more Amazonian, right? Mm -hmm. Right. We're really going to put the screws to people who can't discount like this. Um, And so there was some initial overreaction by certain quarters, which kind of quieted down. So that was one part of it. But But. the Amazon flame is always burning. (laughs) And President Obama decided to put a big old 55-gallon drum of uh, gas on it. Mm-hmm. by giving Big a economy job. speech at, at Amazon, an Amazon warehouse in Tennessee. Yeah, so um, Amazon has a facility in Chattanooga, Tennessee, that's a fulfillment warehouse. It employs a couple thousand people. And President Obama um, was set to give a speech there on Tuesday afternoon. Uh, well before Tuesday afternoon, there was a lot of outrage about the fact that um, that President Obama, who touts the importance of small businesses and Main Street versus Wall Street, was going to show up and speak at, at a business that is um, thought, by many at least, um, to be actively pursuing uh, putting small businesses out of business and not just in not just in book selling but mm-hmm. certainly we heard a lot about it from uh, right. independent booksellers in the publishing industry who were wondering what was up with the president being there. Um, there was an article published in a reputable publication titled, Does President Obama Hate Indie Bookstores? Mm-hmm. Uh, which, I mean, come on, of course he doesn't. Um, <laughs> I mean, is that even... <laughs> It's such a silly question <laughs> that I can't. Even. I, I know, right? Um, uh, so, a, a silly approach to actually talking yeah. about an important right. And the thing. long and short of it, in a way, at least from the book's perspective, is he didn't say word one about books. There, he <laughs> I mean, didn't. Yeah. I, I, it's a it's a thirty five minute talk. Um, we have it embedded at bookriot.com, and I've watched it twice. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't talk about books at all, except in a passing mention of watching what people who worked in the Amazon warehouse were packing up right. uh, to ship off. But before he mentioned books, he mentioned like protein powder yeah. and, and uh, you know, like batteries, things right. that other things that people order from, from Amazon. But it got me thinking about why would President Obama speak at an Amazon um, warehouse and about those uh, the need to to find businesses that are are creating jobs, which Amazon undeniably is, no matter uh, whether we like Amazon or not. But but it also got you me can thinking about the quality of those jobs. If you want sure. to, there's a lot of things to say there. Um, but it's it, it's an Amazon story, but I'm not sure it's a bookstore story that President Obama went there. Myself. Yeah, it's um, I guess insofar as. Every Amazon story yeah, is turned so. into a bookstore story. This is a bookstore story. Um, but for me, the the thing that's really worth talking about with this whole uh, flare up is how we talk about Amazon right. in the book industry, and it's particularly how the media um, talk about the tension between Amazon and independent booksellers, and and the ways in which that conversation is not productive and and could be more productive. It's really super easy to write a headline that asks, does President Obama hate indie (laughs) bookstores? Because people will click Mm -hmm. on that headline. But that's not, I think, not the best way to really move this conversation forward or to talk about um, what do independent bookstores provide that Amazon can't provide. And if we want independent bookstores to thrive, and I'm a person who wants independent bookstores to thrive, then what's our job in book media to, you know, to really make the conversation 
not click worthy, but actually productive. Yeah. And you and I, we, in, in sort of a rare feat, both dived into some comments on uh, a post you wrote. And I think mm-hmm. I, I actually, in writing something, thought something, as sometimes happens when you're writing something, that there's this idea that if more sort of rank and file book buyers knew about Amazon's business practices, and let's not sugarcoat it, they do some things that I don't think we all like, you know, they, they, they get out of all the sales taxes they can. They often, um, place distribution centers in places that are advantageous for taxes. They throw a big stink and lobby, get governments, uh, state governments, California notoriously to exempt them from sales tax. And if they don't get the way they want, they'll pull their affiliate. You know, they do some things like that on the buyer side. They also give publishers a super hard time about pricing. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that they do that big, frankly, um, multi-billion dollar corporations sometimes do it. And that's a conversation I think that's, I don't think anyone wants to whitewash that. Um, But the idea is if you're thinking pragmatically and your goal is to keep independent bookstores open, is bellyaching about Amazon all the time the best way to do that? I, I suspect there is a really small percentage of people who, if you sat them down with some charts and stuff, would be like, you know what? I really shouldn't be shopping at Amazon. I think the reasons people do it are not not that hard to understand and also more difficult to counter mm-hmm. than most people would think, right? Like right. it shows up on your door the next day, it's got the cheapest price I can buy from anywhere. Yeah, um, I think super hard to say, but they don't pay sales tax in Idaho or something. Yeah, like that. the the thing that gets me all worked up is uh, the implication or the outright statement in a lot of discussions of Amazon that the only reason a person would shop there is that they don't know any right, better. Yeah, right. um, it's condescending. It's naive. It's unproductive, and it. Um, you know, it's great to insult the people that you want to convert as your customers. I can only imagine that the reason you shop at this place that's not my store is that you don't know any better. I mean, there are so many other ways to say that. Um, But for all of the reasons that you just described and for many more, you know, I think it's fair to describe Amazon as ruthless, Mm -hmm. but Amazon and Jeff Bezos in particular often are called evil. And this is the thing, um, like if I have a soapbox about this, this is my present soapbox about how we talk about Amazon is let's please just get rid of, of, of this evil right. term when we discuss it. Let's reserve evil for people and actions that are actually evil, that, um, yeah, you know, that hy- result in loss of life. And the hyperbole, I mean, I am sympathetic to, to independent bookstores, but the hyperbole of just like the constant like – you know, evil empire and blah, 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 just Mm -hmm. makes me roll my eyes and be like, shut up. Like you're turning off even someone sympathetic to your cause. I think, um, and when everything, when everything's an emergency, nothing is an emergency. emergency, Um, Um, So it's, it's difficult to shake it out. I think both of you, both you and I kind of land on the same conclusion, which is if you want your, if you're on the indie bookstore side, like let's say you're a purveyor or a patron, the goal, you're not going to, I don't think you're going to get anywhere by like trying to educate people about Amazon, maybe, but in a, in a sane way, you just got to be so good that people want to shop on your store. That's all there is. To yeah. It. I think you just have to be 
awesome and you have to talk a lot about the things that make you awesome that are and particularly I think innovate like try yeah, stuff yeah right be awesome in ways that amazon cannot be awesome right um and get the word out there about how you are awesome in those ways and just be so great that people want to shop in your stores and are willing to pay the higher prices that come along with shopping in an indie bookstore because of all the other awesome stuff they'll get yeah, just don't even talk be about your awesome don't even talk about relative prices yeah like I don't know, it's 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 a hard it's a hard business. Don't get me wrong, and I'm sure it's got to be really frustrating to see Amazon do what they do, um, seemingly unchecked, uh, and and still try to keep your business afloat. And I, I, I do I certainly sympathize with that. Um, but I think from a practical point of view, it might feel good to complain and and yell about Amazon. And I think maybe some of that should be channeled towards your lawmakers. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not sure that it does you any good. In fact, I think it probably actively works against what you want to do. And that's make your readers like you and want to come support you. Yep. Fair? Fair. All right. We just need a little sanity in how yeah, we have this conversation. Well, let's do birthdays. Let's get away from this. Let's go Happy back times. to a let's different place in time. Let us light some candles. Do, we only do one birthday this week, but I kind of got a lot about it. So Alfred Lord Tennyson, born August 6, 1809. Oh, boy. In Summersby, England. Well, he's definitely dead. Dead. I hope so. Um, poet, you pro you know, this is one of those poets that you know the name, but it's hard to remember that he wrote things like Charge of the Light Brigade and Ulysses, um, the, the poem. Um, interestingly, you know, one of the blue bloods of English poetry. What I want to talk about today, he went to Cambridge, like a lot of the writers of his time and even to this day. And he was member of a secret society. You like secret societies, don't you? Oh, who doesn't? I know everyone likes a secret society, especially at Cambridge. And I read a lot of Dan Brown, so you yeah, know I you love go. me oh, a secret this society. Would be awesome if his new one is about Cambridge. I want that to happen. Uh, maybe if they put Dan Robert Langdon in Kindle Worlds, we can write some fan fiction. About. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Robert Langdon fan fiction would be a, a money maker. Oh, anyway, Jeff, can we please do that? I know please. we have to, may have to stop the show because that's gold, baby. We got we got to get. We I'm get opening a Google Doc now. <laughs> <laughs> so he was a member of the Cambridge Apostles, a secret society that everyone knows about. Which I'm not sure how much is a secret anymore. I guess you don't know who the current members are anytime. Still exists to this mm -hmm. day, an intellectual society that have weekly meetings that were discussions, and one member would give a talk. Um, at that meeting about an idea or, uh, you know, a person or something like that. So kind of like a, you know, a, a betterment society, but it also became very prestigious. Um, Tennyson, a lot of the lights of English letters over the years, the Bloomsbury group famously was like both Leonard Wolf, who was Virginia Woolf's husband and mm. Ian Forster. And a lot of those people were in the, um, in the secret society called the Cambridge Apostles. And it's called the Apostles because of the number 12 and there are 12 original members. And it's, it's been in the, in, in, in the reason the, my bells went off, especially when you mentioned Dan Brown, was in the 30s, a lot of these guys were Marxists, as a lot of intellectuals were at the time. And some of them spied for the KGB. Wow, I love everything about Isn't this story awesome? so far. Please keep going. So let me just give you a couple of examples. So um, the, the, most, the most famous one is um, a, uh, let's see, a, a guy named um Guy Burgess or Guy Burgess um, were Marxists and they were elected to the secret society in the 30s. And um, this guy, Anthony Blunt, was the art advisor um, to the Queen. Hmm. Um, and he was actually knighted in 1979. 
Oh, I'm sorry. He was knighted in 1956, but then Thatcher came back, and once they find out he was a spy, they stripped him of his knighthood in 1979. Wah, wah. So there's a lot of good stuff for Dan Brown to get into. For serious. I mean, there's, that, that's just what I'm finding off my just basic kind of Googling around. So you know there's more dirt there to find out. Well, I think got, maybe we you've should, got, you've got we should poets. E- email our friends at Random House and be like, We've got it. You've got secret societies. You've got spying for the KGB. Obscure you've got history. Obscu- I mean, we've got, you know, we've got all that we've got. It's like it's like you're getting ready to cook and you've got the, the cream and the noodles, everything ready and for the, an awesome fettuccine Alfredo. You just got to put it all in the pot. And have we spent much time in London with Dan Brown? I don't think we, we have. Like- and, you know, he could put on his Rick Steves um, pleated cargo oh. shorts. And his um, <laughs> big, you know, big glasses and do our little literary tour of London. We haven't oh spent much God. time in London. You're absolutely Yeah, right. they go to Westminster Abbey in well, you know what, they one spend, of the books, but it's like a run-through. It's a drive-by. Yeah, maybe they'd spend more time. It's, it's hard to remember. I haven't read I The would, Lost Symbol, so yeah. I don't know how much time. Oh, The Lost Symbol is all Washington, D.C. Oh, okay, good, good, good. But this, you've got, there's also some stuff about Jews and mathematicians and Good Lord. There's, this there's needs to happen. It needs so to happen. So anyway, that's, um, anyway, Alfred Lord Tennyson, happy birthday, happy hundred and, no, 205th birthday Woo. coming up this week. Alfred Thanks Lord for being interesting, Tennyson. Alfred Lord Tennyson. All right. So let's do, we got some tech. You we do got tech? some tech stuff. Yeah. Oh, Can I we... skipped one. I skipped one. Oh, okay. Well, this airport. is sort of actually, it's tech too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Tell and about we got some hometown connections yeah, here. Right so, uh, the Kansas State Librarian, Joanne Budler, who was named Library Journal's 2013 Librarian of the Year. And uh, Jeff, you and I are both from Kansas. So, this is exciting to us, particularly. Aspra, Praspra. Oh, yeah, baby. Uh, she started a program in the Manhattan, Manhattan, Kansas uh, municipal, the Little Apple, little apple um, in the Manhattan, Kansas municipal airport uh, where you uh, can see flyers posted around the airport that have QR codes on them and URLs for people who are using an e-reader that doesn't have a QR code scanner option. Um, And it will take you straight into the local library's ebook lending system. So if you are in... In the airport, you're stuck because your flight is taking off late because it's snowing in the middle of Kansas or raining in the middle of Kansas Mm -hmm. or there's a tornado watch in the middle of Kansas um, or you're just bored because you're in the middle of Kansas in the airport and you need something to read. Uh, You can scan a QR code or type in a quick URL on your tablet and be straight into the Kansas State Library's e-lending service. now. The one of the hitches in this story that no, I've come read, on. yeah, there's a it's a little hitch is that in order to borrow from the Kansas State Library system, you have to have a library card from that system. Well, that seems fair. Yeah, not a huge problem because most people in this Manhattan, Kansas airport are going to be from that area. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you don't have a library card, it directs you to Project Gutenberg, where you can download free titles in the public domain. So they do have a workaround. Okay. Um, there are some other airports that are trying this as well. And then there's also an airport. Oh, I think it's... Where'd it go? I lost my other link. Some other um, airport. Some other airport is doing a little, basically little free libraries of physical books in the airport where you can leave a book, take a book, yeah, no. um, which I think is super duper cool. Um, 
I would love it if every airport had this, if they could maybe find a workaround of the library card thing. Cause you know, I, I fly in and out of New York a lot and I don't have a New York state. Well, how about <laughs> this I, national uh, library? Can we do yeah. a national library? Library could, of Congress can do this. That would be great. Or go online, sign up for hmm. a free membership to these oh, airports or, or lending services. Yeah. Make a donation. Um, but I know if my library had, or if my airport had like a box or just a little shelf oh, yeah. in a corner that was like the give a book, take a book library, I would drop off the last paperback I finished um, and leave for somebody else to pick up. And maybe cool. I would see what other people had left. It would be a cool experiment, but um, thumbs up. Good job. Very good. If you're flying in and out of Manhattan, Kansas, and you're a member of the library, be sure to check that out. Yeah. Good job, Joanne Budler. Good for job, all of you there. Thinking this up um, from giving travelers, you know, new options to find reading material. And apparently this whole idea was born when she was sitting in the library or in the, sorry, in the airport. She was sitting in the airport. She noticed that everybody was staring at their phones Mm. and she was like, well, how could we get these people to focus on books? But realizing that travelers like technology, instead of trying to fight the battle about print books, she wanted to embrace that travelers are using technology um, and show them how to get books on their phone. So awesome. So awesome. Let's try this. Um, let's streamline it. Let's put it everywhere. We'll, we'll keep tabs on that. We'll see if they're open in a year. And what's cool yeah. Let's just try that. All right, let's do some more books, reading and technology. This one's you. New, new site this week that I came across called readups.com. You can go check it out right now. Um, I haven't tried this out yet, but I've looked around and the basic pitch is a web-based reading system for tablets and laptops. I'm just reading the copy right now. Mm-hmm. So you create an event um, and you grab something to read. I don't know how this happens. Maybe you send a URL um, and you set a time frame for an hour, two hours a week. And then you can invite people to come discuss the reading with you. You can leave comments. Um, you can discuss things in there. And it's kind of a way to create a discussion group about books in the moment. Um, and it gives you a space where this thing kind of thing is easy. I think it's kind of interesting. One thing that I can imagine using it for is teaching, for example. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if that's really what it's meant to do, but it would be an awesome way for for students to collaborate about something without having to be in the same physical space. I, I don't really understand the the it expires and you can't go back and see it time. Yeah, I don't understand that either, because then what are you supposed to do? Be like writing notes on a post-it note about the stuff that you want to remember from your discussion. But I can see using this Mm -hmm. like um, within Book Riot, we use an internal social network with all of our contributors. And relatively frequently, someone pops up being like, oh, my God, did you guys read this thing? Here is like where I'm stuck in this book or here's what I think about it. Or it happens on Twitter that um, somebody pops up wanting to talk about a book that they're reading and then other people can chime in. It might work really well for um, book clubs in which the members do not live close to each other Mm -hmm. geographically, you know, but you could still. Yeah, I don't know if you can up. I don't know what is eligible to put into the system, if that makes sense. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. know if it has to be open source or it has to be a URL or something like that, but that's certainly an interesting idea. I also understand to set a time frame. Like, we're only going to discuss this for 60 minutes so that attention gets focused and, you know, it doesn't fly away into the rest of our lives, especially from a student's perspective, that's very attractive, right? You have have Mm -hmm. a deadline and it gives you some impetus to make sure you do it and participate before it's over. I don't understand why it has to go away, but you know, that's, maybe that's something they'll think about, or maybe there's a reason I don't really understand, um, to do that. And as people try this, 
Um, maybe they'll come up with really awesome reasons for that to exist, but that's the part of it I don't understand. But that's readups.com. You yep. can go there and Very sign cool. up, and um, it's up and going. They've, they say they've done 1,365 readups so far. So people Oh, nice. Yeah, I like this idea of social reading. Um, I'm really interested to see what, what will be the thing that hits. Like somebody's going to get it yeah. really, really right. You know Someone what I was thinking about? I was out. thinking about that too with social reading. It's like I kind of feel like we're in the early days of like – air, you know, like flight of mm. man, of like heavier than air flight. And you remember like all those videos of like those cockamamie contraptions <laughs> that people are like, you know, trying yes. to get to fly. I kind of feel like we're in the cockamamie contraption era of social reading. I think you're right. Like people are just trying stuff and some, uh, most of it isn't going to work, but one of it maybe really will be revolutionary. Yeah. I think that's part of uh, how we were saying earlier that this is an awesome time to be a reader. Like it's sort of great yeah. to be um, in an industry during the throw spaghetti at the wall and, ste- and see what sticks, right. period. And that's that's totally what we're doing with book technology. And some of it's crazy town right. uh, and some of it is really bad, but some of it's very cool. And it's uh, it's fun to see just how people are thinking about this. And I think it's awesome to be in the phase where anything is possible. So people are giving just about anything a shot because you know like i I don't know that that this one particularly seems like it's going to be the thing but i'm sure someone was saying about those idiot bicycle making brothers out in north carolina (laughs) jumping off sand dunes those guys aren't going to do anything and lo and behold they done did it so (laughs) you know check that out that seems interesting if you have a use for that if you can think of a use for that that we haven't thought of um which is probably anything but teaching right now i guess what we're saying um shoot us a line of podcast at bookride.com we'll talk about on the next show if you have a cool idea Want to do some new books? I'm ready. We got new books, new Oh, Chuck. Chuck. Yeah, man, I love it. I love it when our friends write books that sound awesome. So uh, Chuck Windig, who co-hosted the show with Jeff a couple weeks ago while I was lying on a beach, uh, he has... Okay, first of all, Chuck Windig, incredibly prolific. Oh, my God. Dude writes a lot of books. A lot of books. Uh, The new one is called Under the Empyrean Sky. It is a young adult book. And here's the tagline. Fear the corn. Fear the corn. Fear the corn. So uh, in this dystopian world called the heartland, corn is the only crop that the government allows the people to grow. And the corn has gotten out of control. Like it's everywhere. I'm thinking that this is like a corn related kudzu situation. Right, like rabbits in Australia or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Cane toads. Um, So Kale, the main character, is the captain of a group called the Big Sky Avengers. Naturally. And I would like a jacket <laughs> to become a member of the Big Sky Avengers, please. Uh, so Kale and his Big Sky Avengers team sail their ship, uh, which like, oh, sorry, hit my mic there. Um, is it? An, so I got all excited. Like the word dirigible is in my notes and Ooh. I'm really excited. Um, yeah, they sail their ship over the corn every day, scavenging for stuff that's left. Um, and Kale is tired of having to spend most of his life living on the ground with the corn and scavenging for stuff while the Empyrean elite live overhead in fancy flotillas. Man, flotillas, flotillas, Jeff. I know. It's always the elite are always in flotillas. Right. They're yachts. Or just, no. Also flotillas. Good yeah. job, Chuck Windig, for use of That's the word nice. flotillas. So let me guess that um, the captain here and his Big Sky Avengers find something that um, – Throws the world into chaos. I'm yes. just gonna throw. I'm just gonna guess this. It's a secret illegal. Yeah. Garden. Okay. It's always something. 
<laughs> and uh, because they're not so happy with their lot in life, sure. they are going to risk the ire of the Empyrean government uh, to work on stuff in this okay. secret illegal garden. Well, the big sky Avengers. Fear the corn. So that's under the Empyrean sky. So that's like sounds. It's it's kind of like dystopian steampunky kind of deal it sounds like to me yeah and it sounds like a lot of fun yeah fun man fun, fun, i fun. want to like also i just love this that like fear the corn that's I know. A and both of us line. being again as we said from the heartland this hits close to home this Lots is of corn so there. this is so great um so that's under the empyrean sky by chuck windig another new book this week we're just going to be all over the place with the genre yeah. which i think is fun and interesting that's is great. uh the mistress by tiffany rice it's the fourth book in her original sinners series uh and this one focuses on nora sutherland who is in who is an erotica writer the character is an erotica a writer. Oh, meta. Um, cool. Yeah, very meta. Um, and this tangled web of relationships that Nora has with the three men in her life. So this is not a love triangle. It is a love quadrilateral. Gotcha. Uh, and I've been reading this series um, after I read Fifty Shades of Grey and was like, oh, God, that was sort of terrible. But I'm glad that I read it. Um, I started asking around for what what is actual BDSM erotica like? Um, and what should I read to get a sense of it? Plus, I'm on this mission to um, like understand the romance genre okay. a little bit better. So right. I've been reading these. Um, I think Tiffany's writing is really elegant and her stories are interesting. And, um, and for me, a measure of what makes a romance or erotica story good is, am I still interested in the story and caring about the characters, even when they're doing stuff that I have no interest in doing? I see. Gotcha. Uh, I see what you're saying there. Yeah. And, and she sells it very well. This is, uh, if you wonder what um, sort of real BDSM erotica is like, um, if you wonder what those practices might be, uh, this is a great series. It's very well written. Um, and there will probably be things in it that you are not interested in doing yourself, mm -hmm. but the writing is really terrific. So this is a, this is a love rectangle is what you're yes. saying. And I'm also guessing since it's BDSM that someone is going to put baby in a corner. I, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> I don't even know what that means. I don't know either, but you know, there's some use for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the thing that I am discovering about sort of romance series is that there will often be this cluster of main characters and each book in the series will focus on a different character, ah. uh, which has been the case. The The first book is called The Siren and it is primarily about Nora's, uh, her life. The second book is about one of the men's uh, lives and his backstory connected to their present day. The third book is about a different character in this love quadrilateral. And now in this fourth book, we're coming back around uh, to Nora. So it's, uh, I think you could read them out of order or you could read them in order. Uh, but if you're looking for a post 50 shades read that is well-written, or if you want to skip 50 shades, but you're still interested in what that kind of book is like, um, Tiffany gotcha. Rice and it's R E I S Z her series, uh, starting with The Siren and working up through The Mistress. Those are great. And now we have another YA. Big book. Big YA book. Wait, uh, another YA? What was her first YA? Oh, Chuck. Uh, Chuck, yeah. Oh, like the Mistress does not sound like YA to me. Definitely yeah. not. Okay. All right. Uh, fair enough. Yeah. So this is All Our Pretty Songs by Sarah McCary. Uh, several book writers have loved this book, and it got picked as one of the five books to watch for in August on our site. It's about two best friends growing up in the Pacific Northwest, these two girls who have an unbreakable bond until, because you know there's an until, a mysterious and gifted musician comes between them. 
Uh, so each girl must decide between friendship and love. Mm-hmm. And Jack, the musician, by the way, has awakened with his music an ancient evil. Oh, you know, no one ever awakens sort of a recent evil. It's always those ancient ones that are get woken up. And it's never like an ancient, semi-benevolent yeah, semi being. An ancient sort of snark monster. Yeah, there's a, mm. he's awakened an ancient evil. Okay. Uh, I'm told that there's a reworking slash like modern retelling of the Orpheus story. Ah, okay, I like that. Mm-hmm. Cool. Lots of good stuff. Sarah writes a great blog called The Rejectionist as well that was anonymous until she got the book deal. And that has since then, <laughs> funny how that funny works. Funny how that works. Yep. Uh, has since then, you know, been non-anonymous, but just as interesting and great. So that's all our pretty songs. And then a quick shout out to Dear Life by Alice uh, Monroe, which is out in paperback this week. Yeah. And, you know, wonderful, quiet, short stories that will be the last we read from the Alice last, Monroe. The last um, addition to the Monroe corpus. That's mm-hmm. it. So if you haven't read Monroe, um, there's a lot of good places to start your life. I'm not sure I would start there necessarily, but it, I, I really think it's, uh, she's, she's someone, if you like literary fiction and you haven't read, you should know. So check out Alice Monroe, whatever. You just pick up whatever. Yeah. The, the dear life was my first. Yeah, that's Alice right. Yes, I remember that. I thought it was really beautiful, but, um, you felt like you were on the coming at the I end felt, of the train. Yeah. I sort of felt like there, it, there was like an inside joke that I wasn't quite yeah. getting or, um, Right. Threads of a story that I was picking up midstream. I think I would recommend. St- I would. I wish that I had started somewhere. Yeah, the the else. omnibus recommendation would be just to the collected short stories. That's where she. That's where she made a name for herself in the short stories. And the collected short stories of Alison Rowe is, you know, one of those things yeah. that you should know if you like literary fiction. Right. All right. We got. We got some stats. Should we do some stat time? You know, I love some stats. All right. Well, a couple new surveys um, about e-readers and print and where the market's going. We're not going to spend too much time on this because we could do this stat every week, right? Mm-hmm. And the long, the long story is that e-books continue to be a bigger and bigger part. The reason these couple of statistics I thought were especially interesting, um, the first one I want to talk about is a study that, um, that suggests that fiction e-books will overtake print by... Listen to this sometime next year. Whoa. And that, my friend, is sooner than many people thought. That is definitely sooner than many people thought. Ebooks have been stronger in fiction than any other, um, what am I trying to say? Any other, any other genre? I guess mm-hmm. fiction is not really a genre. Any other, it's the nonfiction, I guess. That's the other one. Yeah. Or textbooks historically have not mm-hmm. done very well in ebooks. But fiction is really driving um, the engine here. Yeah, and and so much so that by next year, it could be that fiction is bigger. Ebook fiction is bigger than ebook print fiction. Um, and I said, I linked to it this week that I think genre has something to do with that. Oh, I think for sure that yeah. this is, uh, this is a story about genre fiction and, and yeah. probably driven at least first, uh, in the early adopters being driven by romance readers. Yeah, like that's right. several years ago, there was a big story in the New York times about, um, how excited romance readers were to be able to read, um, on, you know, Kindles and nooks and tablets and, and therefore to be able to read romance without, and to read, publicly without other people being able to see what they were reading and judging them for it. Also, Um, they just buy a lot. Yeah, they read a ton. Um, I think same goes for uh, like sort of more commercial mystery thrillers, the stuff that you can just plow through. Um, Sci-fi, fantasy, mm -hmm. I think. 
Oh. And those, the genre writers have been the first to experiment with stuff like ebook singles yeah. or to offer deals on their ebooks, um, to reach out to their readerships. In these yeah. So you can, you know, if you get into one, you're going to do the others. Um, so that's, that's interesting to find. I wonder if they broke it out by literary fiction. I'm, I'm sure the, um, the statistic would be much lower there. Those those guys. Yeah, it's something those, tells no, me those, it's, those um, jerk it's not the, fans. Yeah, it's not the Franzonites that are yeah. driving yeah. Uh, ebook fiction sales for sure. Um, and there was another another survey of readers, and this was not about so much how what they were reading, but how they felt about it. If that makes sense. Sure. Um, so readers prefer ebooks to paperbacks in this survey, 77 to 52 percent. And this is a survey of 3,000 readers. 3,000 readers. So putting hardbacks to the side, because I think people who like print uh, like have a special place in their heart for hardbacks. Mm-hmm. But this is ebooks and paperbacks. Um, however, the question allowed readers to choose from all formats that apply. So some readers are buying the same books in multiple formats, which is interesting. Um, one, when it comes to pricing, 52% said if they want a book badly enough, they don't care what it costs. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. But 22% said they wouldn't pay more than four ninety nine for a book. Whoa. So th- those, I guess, are the people who live in sort of either deals or a lot of self-published stuff, I would think. Mm-hmm. That's what falls Yeah, or there. ebooks. You got to be exclusively reading ebooks if you're not willing to pay more than four ninety nine. Because yeah, a, be. a mass market paperback is what six ninety nine, seven ninety nine. Do libraries and used maybe? Yeah. If you think about it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the the statistic that really jumped out at me because this is not at all how I see the world. So I always like to see that is that. Fifty percent said reviews posted by other readers to retail sites are the most important thing to them when selecting a book to read. And that blew me away. Me too. Okay, so later on in the same article, though, they say that 53 percent of readers say that they are somewhat swayed by reviews. And when they were asked which reviews were the most important to them, 50 percent chose reviews posted by other readers. Oh, so they kind of left that out. So really, it's only 25 percent of people saying reviews are the most uh, retail reviews. Okay. Well, and what are the other choices they were given here? Like Uh, that. This is what I I have so many questions. (laughs) You want to see the whole thing. I want to see the survey. Um, So when they say 50% said that reviews posted by other readers to retail sites were the most important, well, what are the other choices that they were given? Were they given the choice to say reviews that my friends post on Goodreads and and they made... Or stuff I saw people talking about on Twitter. Right. Or book blogs that I read. Um, Because I know that a lot of readers look at reviews on retail sites, but for 50% of people who buy books, at least in the survey of 3000 readers to say that reviews posted on retail sites are their most important factor. I mean, I I could be way off, but it leads me to believe that the other options they were given for what are your most important sources of reviews were fairly limited. Yeah, there's a lot of, you're right. You know, now the more I think about that, that there might be a question problem um, floating around there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Let's do one more stat here at the bottom because you and I are we are interested in social media and books. Sixty mm-hmm. percent um, of those surveys said they do not follow their favorite authors on Twitter, whereas eighty-seven percent say they follow their favorite authors on Facebook. Hmm. I think that might be there's just a more people on Facebook story. Yeah, than absolutely. There are on Twitter, but um, by orders of magnitude. But if you're an author out there, uh, Facebook is the place to be. 
sure. for people following you. Yeah. And the, uh, the thing that I'm really curious about, uh, the survey was conducted on SurveyMonkey, uh, which is an online survey system mm. um, between June 1st and June 30th of this year. So these results are really new, yeah. um, very fresh, but it's given exclusively online. And I wonder, I'm curious about where uh, they found respondents for this survey, if it's a survey that's primarily, I don't know, promoted with an ad on Facebook <laughs> or that's pushed fair. out pushed out on Twitter or through Goodreads well, we or whatever. Know, we also know that the top 20% of book buyers buy like 80% of the books. Yeah. So is this just people who just maybe don't even read at all? Or is this people they ask, do you consider yourself a reader, blah, right. blah, blah. So who are these people are that these answer people? these questions? And, That's what you I know, need. Statistic Real Talk from Rebecca Shinsky is much. Context, needed. people. Context. Speaking of Statistic Real Talk. Oh. We got one more good. Oh, no, I'm sorry. We'll do. We'll do. We got a good story fan. So one more. Um, this is a follow up, not to something we, we do. But to a long-suffering institution, you may have heard of it, Borders Bookstore. Still a thing? Still a thing. It has found its final resting place. Um, a book chain in Singapore, a new book chain in Singapore, bought the rights to the Borders brand. Interesting. So there's going to be some new Borders in Singapore. But the, it's not the same company, none of the same assets. It, the, we'll link to it in the show notes. They've, they've used the logo. Welcome to Border Singapore. Um, the guy who's running it says he really liked the way Borders felt more homey than some of the other stores, and he thought there was some brand equity left in Borders. Huh. And so he bought the name Borders, um, and he's going to use it to rename his Prologue bookstore chain. Uh, and Borders Books in Singapore, and it's going to—it's the same classic red background with white lettering, same font and everything. But that's where it ends up. Uh, in a small Singaporean bookstore chain hmm. for Borders. So I don't know if that's sadder than it just being it's, dead, dead, or I think it's same. curiouser and curiouser. Curiouser and curiouser, like, yeah. Why not just take the aspects of Borders that you thought were good, the hominess? Well, if the price is right and you think it gets you anything, right? I don't yeah, know. I don't know. I mean, I I question the value of purchasing a brand or aligning your store with a brand that is uh, whose death has been widely announced. Maybe it hasn't. Not so. Maybe they don't know in Singapore. They think this is actual borders. This, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how. I'm. I have all the questions. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's so. This guy maybe maybe he's wrong, but he thought there was mm -hmm. enough there, and that's where borders but he's, is. You know, he's right. Borders was welcoming, and yeah. they served good coffee there. And wait, and watch this. I'm going to set you up for the ending happy story. Oh. Borders did frequently smell like chocolate chip cookies. Well, and there's a reason apparently that bookstores do this because chocolate moves units, baby. Mm hmm. And in a recent study, um, this was published in the Huffington Post that book retailers who have their stores smell like chocolate increase their sales. Yep. Especially for certain kinds of titles, um, such as romance and food-related books, can be increased by about 40%. That's amazing. That's a lot for some chocolate. It is a lot. Bake you know, some brownies, sell some books. It's, I'm, in, I'm glad that we're starting to talk about it selling books um, 
when I worked for Barnes and Noble several years ago, I worked in a store that had a cafe and, um, the Barnes and Noble cafe, at least in that one, got all of the baked goods, um, as frozen dough and had an oven. And then every morning would bake, like put the frozen scones in and bake the scones, put the frozen cookie pucks in and bake the cookies. And there was a good solid, like six month period where, um, we were trying to increase baked Uh good sales in the Barnes and Noble cafe. And the cafe, Cafe workers were instructed to always have one chocolate chip cookie in the oven. That makes all the sense in the world. Midwest Airlines, did you ever fly that back to Kansas? Mm -mm. They had a thing where they they baked chocolate chip cookies on the flight and you got two cookies. Oh my God. And I'm seriously, we would go out of our way. We would go out of our way to book Midwest for those 28 cents worth of cookies an hour into the flight. We would. I remember that there was just. It just feels good. It it just feels good. There was this like careful calibration of how long you could leave a frozen puck of cookie Uh, dough in the oven before before it started started smelling burned. (laughs) Um, And then you know they would bake for however long they baked, and the cafe workers would take them out, and then they would make an announcement. You know, attention. Barnes and Noble customers, we have fresh, warm, gooey chocolate chip cookies um, that will taste so delicious dunked in your coffee. Oh, boy. And And little did they know that they were also selling uh, romance titles at the same time. They were also selling books. I am glad to know that having your cafe or having your store smell like chocolate doesn't just sell chocolate, but also sells. Well, and just a word about methodology, and I don't know why they did this, but the stu- study was conducted over 10 days at a local bookstore. So just one bookstore, so that's okay. not a good sign, So mm-hmm. right? During which the store smelled like chocolate for half of its business hours. I don't know if they rotated half. They hmm. should have, right? They should be different halves. Well, yeah, technically they, they should have done it. Like in the mornings, it wouldn't smell like well, or some chocolate, and, and then in the afternoons it would, and then you'd flip flop them or something. Okay, right. Analyze the behavior of every fifth customer that entered the store. Okay. I guess they couldn't watch every customer because that's hard, but so they picked mm-hmm. a representative, sort of a total of 201 patrons, and found that customers were twice as likely to look at, a, at more than one book when the store smelled like. And, and, and I guess the the explanation if you were doing your like little science project thing, we had the, the foam board, right? We mm-hmm. have to explain your results. I guess it would be. People, it feels good to be in there, and so people are willing to stick around longer. Yeah, right? it's an it's a pleasant experience to be somewhere that smells like chocolate, and you might want to make that pleasant experience last longer. Right. I feel like maybe we need a rotating segment on this show called a brief word about methodology. A brief word about methodology, <laughs> and let, let's just be clear: Do we feel bad about this strategy? If like bookstores are like, God, no, no, we I don't. We're being manipulated into buying more books because it smells like chocolate. You're okay with that? I assume that I'm being manipulated every time I walk oh, into the cynicism establishment. Oh, by what, oh man, by what music they play by what temperature the oh, AC is on. by how bright the lights are. I mean, I don't know what they do in men's clothing stores, Jeff, but I am positive that there are some things going on with lighting and mirrors in women's clothing stores that are intended to get you, you know, out of the dressing room and up to the cash register as quickly as possible. Well, in men's clothing so, stores, they just make it smell like victory. That's how they move the units. Right. That, well, it's working for Old Spice. Yeah, that's so right. They just, pump in, they just pump in aerosolized ego if you, if you, you walk have, out with some new chinos. <laughs> if you have to um, manipulate me to get me to buy things, manipulating me with the smell of fresh, okay, delicious baked yeah, goods, yeah, do it. So what we're, if, we, if we circle all the way back around, one thing that independent bookstores should do is make all their stores smell like chocolate. 
Yeah. Because you know what? Amazon totally doesn't smell like chocolate. It does not. Not even close. Nope. All right. I think that's our show. That's our show, man. Chocolate. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have to go eat chocolate now. I'm Jeff O'Neill. You can find me on Twitter at Reading Ape. And I am Rebecca Shinsky. And you can find me on Twitter at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. If you've got a note for the show, podcast at bookriot.com. You can follow Book Riot on Twitter. I saw there were new reviews on iTunes. Good stuff. And new ratings. So thank you so much. Um, we, we, we can tell more people are finding the show and we're so excited about that. And if you want to support the show in your own small way, it actually it's a very big way to us mm-hmm. to go rate and review the show on iTunes is a huge help. Huge help. We, uh, If you are listening to this on iTunes or through RSS or any of those things, we now have fancy new oh, free, yeah. we have free, free apps. apps available in the... They're um, not mozzarella sticks. These aren't free mozzarella sticks. You get them Android, iOS. Let's go to the your um, app store of of uh, choice and search for book riot it's a dedicated player for the podcast super nice got a ios and android yep and you can check that out um you can find show notes at bookriot.com slash category slash podcast and we'll be back here with you next week next week see you later rebecca bye jeff <laughs> <laughs>